Killer remix drop. Medicine We're remix, here. fam. Scary V. remix. Next big thing, get on it now. Appreciate that, brother. Make the most of today. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Medicine Remixed. What's up, Medicine Remix? Christian from Afrobeast. Uh, thanks for calling back. I appreciate it. Uh, I'm just kind of curious of about allergies. You know, I got real bad allergies. It's allergy season. Pollen is in the air. I'm curious about medicine, as in like what is found in allergy medication medication that kind of like zaps you know that aller the allergy symptoms out of you. Uh, I'm real curious about that. I'm kind of experimenting looking for like you know whole food solutions and you know more plant-based solutions so uh if you guys made any kind of segment on you know what's actually in allergy medication that would be super interesting and valuable to me uh thanks for getting back to me talk to you later peace christian my man what is really good it's reesh from medicine remix so as far as your question about allergy medicine, first of all, this is a great question and topic. And actually I'm gonna be reaching out to a friend of mine who is an allergy and immunology specialist. So uh, she would have much more detailed responses to your questions. But in general, allergies can be considered as an overactive immune response. So basically what happens when you encounter these allergens like pollen, the initial exposure basically causes certain antibodies in your body to form these IgE antibodies and they attached to your cells and basically what happens is you have release of these different chemicals like histamine so antihistamines like benadryl or claritin for example that's those are the medications that are working on those particular chemicals and other chemicals that are produced include things like leukotrienes so uh, medications like singular for example work on uh, these chemicals to reduce them in your body that's basically the in a nutshell version of an answer to your allergy uh, medicine question definitely stay tuned for this documentaries interview that we have coming up with allergy specialist Dr. Akila Jefferson. I think that's uh, going to be a good one, especially for people like you that have allergies. Huh? So without further ado, here's the latest documentaries only on Medicine Remix. Documentary. Documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? Hello. Hey. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks so much for um, doing this. Oh, no, of course, of course. Sorry it took so long to figure out a time. Oh, no, no worries. I know you're super busy. And, um, well, yeah, I guess that would be an interesting place to start. I mean, you were working today? No, funny enough. I oh, was yeah. not. <laughs> I wasn't. I'm actually, um, you know, I'm from New Orleans. I uh, So I came home to visit my parents. I've been oh. traveling all day. Oh, gotcha. Thank you even more for <laughs> agreeing no. to do 
do like on your time off but are fridays typically working days for you you're just like on vacation now yeah usually i work tuesday wednesday thursday friday i'll have clinic okay but usually monday is my laid back day but my weeks have been a little off because i'm starting a new gig actually in two weeks oh okay so yeah my schedule's been a tad bit different from usual but i'm looking forward to it awesome so this new gig is it going to be similar schedule wise to what you've been doing up until now or no it's actually going to be better so um i'm going to be doing clinic three days a week now so i'll be at basically at ucsd and rady children's hospital in san diego full time oh great um but my schedule is clinic three days a week you know i'll do general allergy clinic and then also uh, i'll be one of their food allergy specialists and then i'll have one day dedicated to uh research and one day for administrative time. So it's oh, a nice. really sweet gig because I actually have time to think and breathe and you know get stuff done, not just do the whole grind of clinic every single day. So right. I am excited. Yeah, no, that sounds great. So up until now, were you doing like a private practice gig or? So up until now I was working at Kaiser oh, um, right. okay. part-time and at UCSD part-time. So one of the funny things I found when I moved to California from DC is California is super saturated with physicians. Yeah. And so it's really hard to find like a really good full-time gig out there. Yeah. So I was kind of piecing stuff together. You know, just departments are are very full and they don't have enough patients. Whoa. So for the past, a little less than a year, I've been doing part-time at both places and finally got full-time in San Diego. So. Well, that's awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. So being that you're back in your old stomping grounds, I guess that's like a good jump off to kind of tell me the Akila Jefferson uh, origin story, <laughs> kind of like, you know, your childhood, what you were into, what kind of kid you were, and kind of how all of that kind of led you into the path of medicine and then ultimately, you know, allergy and immunology. Yeah, so I'm one of five kids. I'm the youngest of five. I'm the only one who went into medicine. Lots of lawyers, lots of teachers, things mm-hmm. like that. You know, we're from New Orleans. We're super Southern folks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, you know, grew up in a house where school was super important, uh, family is super important, and everyone else was really interested in lots of other stuff that I was not interested in at all. So, um, you know, when I told my parents, you know, I want to do medicine, they thought it was so cool because no one yeah. else in our family does that. And they were right. super supportive, even as a little girl and, you know, making sure if I wanted to go shadow people, they would help me figure that out and all those little mm-hmm. things. I could get that exposure. But when I went to college, I, uh, you know, had that on my mind. But when I got there- Where'd you go to college? I went to Brown, Providence, Rhode Island. When I got there, I also realized that I was super interested in kind of um, just other things about life. So, you know, you were pre-med biology all day, physics all day, chemistry all day but you don't really get to explore a lot of the other stuff. So philosophy and English and history and all of those things. So I was really kind of missing out on that. And I ended up majoring in bioethics rather than majoring in biology or pre-med or whatever. So I'm really happy I did that because I really got to just learn so much other stuff. And I realized that, you know, I'm going to go to medical school anyway. What, like, what's the rush, you know? So I didn't finish all my pre-med requirements during undergrad. And for the year after I graduated, I finished, I had like two or three courses to take. And I worked for a women's health nonprofit in Boston, did my pre-med requirements and like actually, you know, 
lived in and figured out other things I wanted to do. And working for those folks, it was a group called Our Bodies Ourselves. They were founded in the 60s during like the big kind of women's health uh, revolution sort of. And they were also super just awesome and showing me other parts of medicine and other parts of kind of health care that are really important. All was, you know, in the back of my mind. So like, okay, I'm going to medical school. I'm going to do all this stuff. I did my master's first in uh, health policy. So that was sort of my next thing. And then I went to medical school after that. So I had a few years in between. And in medical school, I thought maybe I wanted to do allergies. But I was also interested in um, chemonk and rheumatology, which they're all sort of connected in a way. It's just big immune system things. But then once I was yeah. there, I went to, you know, each sort of clinic and chemonk was a little too sad. Yeah. Um, room was a little too obscure. Huh. And allergy, yeah. I just love, loved everything about it. And I myself have allergies. Right. I have food allergies. I have asthma. I have nasal allergies, which you can probably hear a little bit right now. <laughs> and I have eczema. You know, it was kind of fascinating. Like, why do I have all these problems? Oh, that's why. This is what's really going on. So from like the first day we had our first immunology lectures and going to clinic and all that stuff, I like loved it. And so, yeah, that's where I am. Wow. Okay. That's a great come up story. Hurricane Katrina happened when, like 2005? So were you back in New Orleans? That was the summer I graduated from college. When you pull back for a wide shot, the scene is nothing short of apocalyptic. 80% of New Orleans, including much of downtown, is underwater. So I happened to be home, um, you know, just in the transition period. And my plan was to come home, you know, in May after I graduated and then to move to Boston in August when my classes started, or September actually, when my classes started. So I was at home. I remember it clear as day. My sister and I, one of my sisters and I went to uh, Baton Rouge, which is about an hour away, north of New Orleans for a party. And um, the next day we came home and there was so much traffic on the highway. Just, I mean, it's a thing called contraflow basically where they change the lanes of the highway so everything goes out of the city rather than allowing traffic to come in. And we just, you know, this is, we had cell phones, but this is before everyone was checking, you know, the weather on their phone or CNN or whatever it was. And my mother apparently had been looking for us. She, I mean, she knew we were going to a party, but she didn't know when we were coming back exactly. And she wanted to leave, but she couldn't leave us. (laughs) So we made it home and she's like, where have you been? We gotta go. The magnitude of the situation is untenable. And we all took naps. We gassed up the cars. We caravan. So at that time, all of my sisters lived in New Orleans. Two of them had kids. So we all hopped in, you know, a bunch of different cars and caravan, picked up my grandmother caravan out the city and drove to Houston, Texas and stayed there. I mean, I didn't come back to New Orleans until November. It was kind of crazy. So that was August. Wow. That was the day before the okay. storm hit. I went straight to Boston from Houston <clears throat> with, you know, whatever I had with me. My mom went to DC. One of my sisters went mm-hmm. to New York. One stayed in Texas. One went in Florida. My dad came kind of back and forth just trying to check on the house and stuff, but they didn't live there until probably November, December or so. And um, it was pretty, pretty terrible, but kind of from a school standpoint. So in 2005, when Katrina happened, that was August 29th, 2005. Mm -hmm. And, you know, school started July 1st. 
2005 or around there. So all the kids who had been there, they basically sent, shipped everyone out. So most people went to Houston, to Rice and to Baylor and stuff like mm. that. But even a fair amount came up to Boston because I had some friends who were in medical school and other schools at Tulane at the time who, um, you know, needed housing and things like that. So it was just a big community effort. If you knew somebody, you helped them. If you didn't know somebody, you helped them. Right, <laughs> and right. just to make sure everybody was okay. Because, you know, the trauma of the hurricane itself Plus the trauma of, you know, people who had just moved here from elsewhere and, you know, just all kinds of other craziness. It's really hard and to continue with school and everything. So that whole year, Tulane was basically shut down and they had school in other places, other states. Um, then in 2000, the 2006-2007 school year was their first class back on the main campus in New Orleans and the main hospitals and everything. And then in 2007, I started. So things are still kind of ramping up to get back to normal, but I wasn't in that very first class. You know, the ones who were really displaced and all that kind of stuff. Right. Um, but funny enough, when I, not funny, but when I started, so in New Orleans, we have University Hospital, which is basically LSU's um, main hospital. There was a hospital called Charity Hospital, which was a big safety net hospital. It's been open for decades and decades, and it was completely and utterly damaged by Hurricane Katrina. It's never reopened since then. Wow. Um, there was Tulane University Hospital, which was our main hub. The VA, which was also really, really damaged and just really reopened in the past few years. Mm -hmm. um, so the VA moved to Tulane's hospital. They had half of our floors where VA patients, half were the regular Tulane patients. And and, um, you know, then a bunch of other kind of community hospitals and things like that. But it was a very interesting healthcare scene here to come into, which, um, you know, I had just studied health policy right before I started school. And I was, I mean, it was just an awesome place to be learning kind of how healthcare systems work, how health disparities really kind of show up when any parts of that system are kind of interrupted so that they're so much more apparent than they were before. And um, even little stuff like, not little stuff, but patient preferences and how sometimes as physicians, we assume what patients really want and what they don't want. So for instance, Charity Hospital, it was a dilapidated building. It's beautiful because it's old and historic and whatever, but it was falling apart um, before the storm and the storm kind of sent its final blow to it. And the city, the patients in the city really wanted that hospital reopened. Whereas all, almost everyone in the healthcare community was like, no, it's not up to code. It's not, you know, it's just not a great place to be. The facilities are not so great. We can do so much more in other places. But it was, you know, the patients really, 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 really wanted it. It was what they knew. It was what they liked. It was where their mom had gotten care, their dad had gotten care, their grandmother, their great grandmother, you know, all these things and kind of pushing through that problem was really difficult and it caused a lot of tension between patients and uh, providers. In the end, they ended up not opening it again, but that was more of like a state level issue. Part of it because it would cost so much to make it back um, to what it needed to be. And there are so many other options that they had at that point, making satellite clinics and other new hospitals and things like that. So it was a kind of cool place to be at the time um, with all that change happening. Yeah, no, I can imagine. When I started residency uh, is when Hurricane Sandy hit, mm -hmm. uh, which was nowhere near Near the devastation that Katrina saw but I had kind of like a micro version of that like just how everything was like shut down and it was just like hospital personnel that were like allowed to travel and just really seeing like the behind the scenes of that and all the stories of people that really suffered a lot of loss and um, yeah I mean it's unique to what we do in our training to kind of see like that side of humanity you know. Absolutely. 
Yeah. You know, as far as your specialty now, I, I don't know, this is kind of a question off the top of my head. Something like that, like a hurricane or a natural disaster, what does that do to like allergens in the mm -hmm. environment? Does that affect it considerably? Is that something that's looked at at all? It is. So one thing that we know is after heavy rainfall and especially thunderstorms, allergens, environmental allergens tend to get worse. So the idea is that the kind of micro particles of pollens and things like that are number one, able to be kind of blown around kind of in farther distances than they otherwise would be in normal weather patterns. Um, but then also the pollens break down in another way that make them a little bit more reactive to us. So almost like clockwork after bad thunderstorms, patients come in and say, oh, I thought my allergies would be better, but I've been feeling bad for the past two, three days. And I'm like, yep, <laughs> that makes yeah. sense with everything. Um, with other kind of natural disasters, especially with kind of bigger global issues, global warming and things like that and changing weather patterns, um, it's really, really effective. So, you know, kind of the general idea is you have allergy seasons. Most people kind of think of it in that way, where usually springtime is the predominant season, where tree pollen is very high. And then fall season is bad for some people where weed pollen is very, very high. If you can imagine if, you know, we don't have times where weather patterns are the same that they used to be, we basically have trees that grow all year round and pollinate all year round. We have grasses that do the same and weeds that do the same. So those uh, allergy seasons tend to kind of meld into one big long season. During winter time, everything is supposed to die. So it shouldn't be so bad for most people if they have right. severe environmental allergies. But again, winter is not as bad as it used to be in a lot of places. So things don't die in the same way. Oh God. So you still have trees that are pollinating. You still have grasses that are pollinating, leaves that are pollinating. And you just kind of have a persistent allergy season with, you know, those kind of blips during spring and fall still, but yeah. kind of low level pollination all the time. So it's not as clear cut as it was, you know, 20, 30, 40 years ago. And you can see that even. They have a few people who look at that specifically. And then in the U.S., there are lots of different stations in different states that usually one state has at least one station where they count pollen counts. And there are big logs of that going back 50, 60 years. So you can really see kind of quantitatively how much pollen on this particular day was there this particular season and how it's changing over time. Whoa. And for the most part, it's increasing. Interesting. Man, you're like part meteorologist, like part <laughs> uh, I know. expert. <laughs> I guess speaking of that, I know um, <laughs> at some point you did an internship at ABC News. I did, I did on their medical unit. It was pretty cool. So at GW where I did my residency in DC, they had a relationship with ABC News through our program director, Gigi Elbayumi at the time, who was a phenomenal clinician, phenomenal program director. She was actually Hillary Clinton's personal physician in DC, wow. just a really awesome lady. And she had this connection somehow. And so basically we had the in at ABC News where we could apply with other residents from around the country, but they always took someone from GW almost all the time. So I applied, I got in, and it's just a, a rotation for, I believe it was only four weeks, maybe five weeks. So just like, you know, you would do a medicine rotation or whatever, just that amount of time. And moved up to New York, you're responsible for all of your other, you know, housing and all those kinds of things. So I actually lived with Latrice on her couch for that time. Oh, wow, nice. 
Yeah. But what we did was we got embargoed journal articles and we basically just read journal articles all day and embargoed, you know, before they were ready for publication, but they had already been accepted for publication. And we read and we tried to find out what the biggest, most important stories were going to be. And then that's what we would present to our editor, basically our chief. And if he thought, okay, this is a good one, we should kind of go ahead. We would try to write the story for it and then present it to the different programming they had. So if it was Good Morning America, at that time, the nightly news was with Diane Sawyer. Good evening, and it is so good to be here with you tonight. And we begin with the seismic vote on health care reform. You know, whatever their shows were that were doing all the big news, we presented it to those head people. And if they liked it, then they ran with our story. If they didn't, then, you know, we went back to the drawing board. But it was really, really cool because I got to, like, meet Diane Sawyer. Yeah! you know awesome i got to go to good morning america a few times and kind of just behind the scenes see how it worked and meet all the um you know robin roberts and all these other people and then their main physician on staff is a guy named richard besser we bring in abc's chief health and medical editor dr richard besser he's also super cool super awesome he really loved all of the residents that came through and really kind of made it a point to let us know if we needed to talk about something if we had stories that we thought were interesting even if they weren't based on journal articles to uh, let him know and he really pushed it if it was a good story. So when I was there, it was around the time that George W. Bush had stents placed. I don't know if you remember this. Yeah, he, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it was that time, which was super crazy because we all were kind of like, why did he have stents placed? <laughs> it yeah. didn't make any sense. He didn't have a heart attack. He didn't have any of that. He basically was found to have some abnormalities on, I want to say on EKG or imaging when he had his physical exam done. And then his physician as part of his normal physical exam I want to say did a cast which was kind of strange because people usually get cast if they have really bad symptoms if they have you know come in in acute coronary syndrome or whatever and all these other things but it seemed like he kind of wasn't at that point but he got a cast anyway and then he got stents placed and so their question at ABC was well is this something that everyone should be doing for all patients all the time Mm -hmm. and uh, you know is the president getting some kind of special treatment that we all need to be getting and there were three of us there at the time. Me, a guy who was a who went on to be a hemonc fellow, and a lady who's a plastic surgeon. And we all were like, no. <laughs> we don't yeah. think this this is not standard of care. It's not proven that casting everyone on earth is, you know, a good idea. It's not without risk. All these things, but those were the tensions, right? So we have our knowledge base. Our editor was a journalist. He wasn't a physician at all. Dr. Besser is clearly a physician. You know, and then the rest of the journalists and the news team and us kind of being like, no, we don't think this is a good idea. And I'm being like, well, no, it's a really good story. Well, Diane, this tiny little thing here is a stent. And what it does do, if you have symptoms, it can relieve those. What it doesn't do, if you don't have heart symptoms, it doesn't prevent a heart attack. It does not prevent a heart attack. And we think of it as, as opening it up so the plaque doesn't cause a heart attack. But that's wrong? That's right. Many studies have shown if you don't have symptoms, it doesn't do anything for you. But if you have symptoms, if you have shortness of breath, chest pain, if you have any fatigue going upstairs, or if you have strange symptoms like new sleep problems or indigestion, that's when you need to ask about getting a stress test to see if some of your arteries might be blocked. All right, well, we'll be following the former president tomorrow, hoping he's home. That was one big story we had there. And, you know, lots of other kind of little ones like that, but that was sort of the gist of what we did, kind of really behind the scenes, but trying to find those good pieces of information that are helpful, but then also basically give them ratings in a way, not to sound that way, but that's a good headline, you know? Right.
do we all need stents? The answer is right. Yes, but it yeah, would make yeah. you watch the news. So. Absolutely. And do you feel like some of that experience or even just out of your own interest at all, like <laughs> translates to some questions that you may be getting from your patients on things that are relevant to the allergy and immunology world or just like random things that they read that, you know, they think a doctor is a doctor and they know mm -hmm. about everything under the sun and that they, they might ask you questions about stuff. Does that ever come up at all? Yeah, absolutely. Every day, probably every patient, <laughs> it comes <laughs> yeah. up. And I constantly tell my patients to stop reading the internet, stop. like constantly. Um, <laughs> and they're like, oh, I know Dr. Google, but, and I'm like, no, really stop reading it because so much information <laughs> out there is just bad information. Right. So, you know, a blog post by someone who's not qualified to speak on whatever subject is not good information, whether it's medicine or anything else in the world, it just yeah. doesn't make sense. But part of it is that there's so much of that out there so much that it seems like people know what they're talking about. And and, um, you know, I have patients, they ask me things that are not related to my field at all, but then they ask me lots and lots of stuff about food allergy in particular, the big one, because, you know, patients are really looking for solutions and answers. Right. And um, with food allergy, we don't really have great treatments right now. So for instance, they're like, well, I heard if I am allergic to this and that, that if I take, you know, this vitamin or this mineral or this mm -hmm. whatever, that it'll make it go away. And I'm like, no, <laughs> don't do that. You're going to hurt yourself. It's not going to be great. Like, just avoid the food. We'll do what we can. We have some things on the horizon with the FDA for particular, uh, for peanut allergy in particular, that, you know, may be an option for you. But for now, none of these things, and there have been people doing studies on food allergies for decades. None of this stuff, the vitamins and minerals and supplements, none of it works. So just please don't do it. But that's not arguing, but having these conversations with parents, especially because they really want to have a solution for their kids is right. really hard. Usually they listen and they kind of get it. And, you know, I'm, I'm a lighthearted person, I would say. And I try to, as much as I can, really connect with my patients and joke with them while I'm being professional and serious and giving them the right information. But sometimes the delivery of a message makes a big difference. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I guess on that note, as far as food allergies and kids. Is there any truth to like exposing kids when they're super young to things like peanuts so that when they're at that age, they don't develop allergies later on? Is, is there any truth to that? Or is that just like a like a media myth? So yes and no. There is some data that if you expose kids to peanut protein at very, very low levels, that it will help them outgrow peanut allergies. Right? Mm -hmm. um, the problem is that we don't know how much exposure is okay. So what tends to happen is that a parent will read that online, right? And they'll say, oh, I should give my kid one peanut a day because that seems to be the lowest level, right? right. I'll give them one peanut a day and see what happens. And then, of course, they give them one peanut and they have a bad reaction. And then, you know, we don't do that. So it's kind of figuring out the how much is enough. And there are lots of studies looking at that. Is it, you know, one microgram? Is it one gram? Is it, you know, how much can one person take to really get that immune response that we're looking for to basically tip you out of your peanut allergy? And it's not really clear. So there's an FDA product that's kind of going through the different phases right now from a company called A Immune that's looking at peanut allergy. And what they're trying to do is not cure it and not prevent it, but they want it to make it so that patients who have a peanut allergy, if they accidentally eat peanut protein, 
do not have severe allergic reactions. So in someone who initially would have anaphylaxis with one peanut, they can have it so that if they accidentally eat one peanut in a cookie or whatever it is, they're okay. But still, if they have 10 peanuts, they're gonna have a problem. So it's more to prevent, you know, those bad stories you hear of a kid at daycare who accidentally ate a peanut M&M and died. To prevent those bad things from happening, but it will not stop peanut allergies or to prevent peanut allergies at this point because the science isn't there. So that's one thing with people who have peanut allergy. With preventing it, that's the million dollar question or billion dollar, trillion dollar question. It's really unclear. We think that it has something to do with exposure in your environment, either in utero or once right when you're born, but it's really unclear exactly what that exposure is because there are plenty of parents who don't expose their kids to peanut at all and their kids do not have peanut allergies. And there are plenty who don't expose at all and their kids do have peanut allergies. So it's more than just the environmental aspect. But I, you know, typically my patients in a mom who's pregnant, I say, eat what you want. If you want to eat peanuts all day or tree nuts or shellfish, whatever it is, eat everything that you want to eat. Once you have your baby, if you notice that they have any trouble when you're nursing or things like that with um, certain foods that you're eating, then take those foods out your diet. Mm -hmm. See, because that could be the first sign of an allergy. And then at that point, we test them and all those things to figure it out. But usually I just say kind of push ahead and there's no evidence that that makes it a big difference either way and either preventing or causing allergies. And then also once they are nursing, if they are nursing, I tell them just to, you know, keep doing that. And if you notice any rashes, any increased congestion, any acid reflux, things like that in the baby, then that's when we start getting worried and trying to figure it out. But until then, until like a baby really proves to me that they're going to be allergic, I try to just push through and pretend that they're they're not going to and, and hope for the best. That's kind of what most of us do and hope that they don't exhibit any signs and symptoms. The other big thing is really exposing. So that's with nursing, exposing kids to foods. Now we're saying at least by six months, they need to start having solid foods that are highly allergenic in their diet versus, you know, before it used to be at least a year. And this data came out in the past two or three years, really, that introducing peanuts specifically and egg also at those early stages is very important in preventing allergies in kids. It's the longer we wait, the more susceptible they are to developing them. Interesting. As far as testing for allergies, how do you go about doing that? Like what's the mm -hmm. process uh, for, for people that, that aren't uh, familiar with it? Yeah, so there are basically two separate ways to test and we always split them up into the, the type of allergens that we're looking at. So for food allergies, we can do skin testing or blood testing, which is a serum IgE test. For environmental allergies, we can do the same. And then there's also things like venom allergies. So things to bees and wasps and fire ants, for instance, where we can do skin testing is the best. There is blood testing, but it's just not as good. Those are kind of the three big ones that we test for. So for foods, most of the time, if I see you in clinic and unless you have some other big problem where I feel like I can't skin test you. So if someone who has really bad eczema, for instance, I usually do skin testing because it's the most sensitive and the most specific. And the way it works is literally taking a little plastic device that has a prickly end, putting food protein on it and superficially scratching your skin. If the patient gets a hive, red itchy hive in that area that's more than three millimeters, then we consider it positive. And our test, you know, it's not 100%, but it's pretty good. It's probably in the 90 something percent accuracy level. And if that shows positive, then we say, okay, we can presume that you have an allergy there. You should avoid that food. For blood testing, you know, with the serum IgE testing is um, basically looking for allergic antibodies that are directed towards certain foods or environmental things. 
And um, with that, it's just a blood draw. Send it to the lab. They do this assay test. And if you have increased antibody towards peanut protein, for instance, and those numbers are on a scale, basically less than zero all the way up to greater than 100. Greater than 100, you know, indicates that you have a very severe allergy. But those are the two most common testing modalities that we do for foods and environmental right now. Gotcha. And who do you recommend getting an allergy shot? And exactly like what an allergy shot is? Yeah, so allergy shots are basically the closest thing to a cure for environmental allergies and for venom allergies that we have. We do not offer shots for food allergies. It's just, it's not anything that's proven to be safe or effective. So most people, when you hear that they're on allergy shots, it's usually for environmental allergens like trees and grass and dogs and cats, things like that. Mm -hmm. So what it is, is basically anyone who has proven allergies on testing, so either that skin or blood testing that I mentioned before, with significant symptoms, you know, in my book are candidates. Per the guidelines, really, if you have positive testing, you have symptoms, you are not controlled on kind of normal daily medications like antihistamines or intranasal steroids like Flonase or Nasonet, and plus minus you have side effects from those medications, or plus minus you really just don't want to take a lot of medications, you would be a candidate for allergy shots. So it's, you know, a really large amount of patients are candidates for it. What tends to happen is if your primary care or you, you know, you're not really seeing a primary care, if they don't send you to an allergy specialist, usually don't even know it's really an option for you. So I have lots and lots and lots of patients on allergy shots. Most of them have lots of allergies with lots of symptoms and don't want to take medication every day. I have a very small amount of patients who have side effects from medications or where, you know, Zyrtec and Flonase and things like that just don't work. Mm-hmm. But it's really a long-term treatment because if you think about it if you take Zyrtec today you're fine but if you don't take Zyrtec tomorrow you have symptoms and so people just you know don't want to take so much stuff to maintain them mm-hmm. but they can just do a few shots here and there it's usually better so what's in the shots is literally the same stuff we're testing you with on that skin test so it's purified protein from you know whatever you're allergic to so a tree or grass or weed dog or cat in some cases dust mites too mixed with usually a stabilizing agent like glycol albumin things like that kind of stabilize the solution and also to make sure that it doesn't get infected in any kind of way or contaminated. And then we literally give you shots that contain what you're allergic to. We start at really, really low doses, which are really just kind of physiologic doses. They don't do anything for your symptoms and slowly build you up to higher doses over several months. So patients, the typical practice will have you come in once or twice a week for allergy shots for the first several months till we get you to the high dose of the medication. And then after that, you come in once a month for your shots. Most studies show that you need to do shots for at least three years to have kind of the sustained efficacy that we're looking for. So the idea is you do shots for three years. After that time, if you're feeling really good and you don't need a lot of medicine at all, or, you know, your symptoms are completely well controlled or gone, then we stop the shots and we hope that you don't have symptoms for some patients. It's five years, some it's 10. I had one patient the other day who finished her shots 40 years ago and last month she started having symptoms again. So it really varies, but most patients, it's at least several years of relief. But again, since it's not a cure, you know, everything can come back. Usually when it does come back, it's not as severe as it was previously. So it's a really good option. And since it's been around for so long, it's been, you know, approved in the United States for over a hundred years. Since it's been around so long, it has really good insurance coverage and things like that. So it's very cost effective for patients and for the kind of general medical community, because you're not spending so much 
you're seeing your doctors all the time because now you feel so much better. You're not spending so much time off work, you know, for uncontrolled symptoms and things like that. And I don't know if you have allergies yourself, but it can be really miserable if you just can't breathe, you can't, you know, your nose is stuffed, your chest is congested. It's really a miserable kind of thing. It's not usually life-threatening, but your quality of life is down the tube. So it really, for lots of patients, I, I hear things like life-changing, you know, that kind of mm-hmm. wording used a lot because it really does make a big difference for them. Yeah, and you know, part of the reason I'm asking is my wife, Rama, has very severe seasonal allergies. And over the past year, she started getting these allergy shots. And actually just maybe like a week or two ago, she was like pretty far into the process. It was pretty much like she was down to like her last two shots for, I guess, you know, this course. And she developed a type of anaphylaxis that I did not even realize existed. It was like a GI anaphylaxis. So mm-hmm. I'm sure you've probably heard of it. But can you kind of explain like how common that is and what you would do for, you know, a patient as far as continuing treatments or discontinuing in a situation like that? Yeah. So, you know, anaphylaxis, well, fatal anaphylaxis, which can happen from allergy shots, happens in about one in every 2.5 million patients a year in the U.S. So it happens. It's not common, but it happens. Then kind of uh, non-fatal anaphylaxis is much more common than that. And just sort of definition wise, so anaphylaxis is an allergic reaction that affects more than one body system. So, you know, if you just have hives or skin rash, that's not anaphylaxis. But if you have a skin rash plus nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, we would consider that anaphylaxis because it's the GI tract and your skin are involved. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where allergy shots, we're literally giving you what you're allergic to. So we know that the risk of reaction is real. Um, usually about 80 to 90% of patients get local reactions. So that's at the injection site. You can get a little swelling, a little itchiness, things like that. And then the more severe reactions are not as common, but they can happen. So most practices will have you wait um, for 30 minutes after your shot to make sure you're okay after getting it because most allergic reactions will happen pretty quickly. But there is a risk of delayed allergic reactions. So a lot of practices will also have you, um, if you're on shots, carry an EpiPen on your shot days to make sure if you have any trouble when you're at home um, later on that day that you have the right tools to get you out of trouble. So, you know, with uh, GI anaphylaxis, it's not very common, but it, it happens. And EpiPens are auto, auto-injectable epinephrine, so not necessarily the branded EpiPen. You know, it's the treatment of choice to get you out of it. Some patients have things like difficulty breathing, full body hives, even lightheadedness, dizziness, passing out, things like that can happen. And so we just always try to be as careful as possible. You know, in my patient population, if they have severe reactions, depending on the severity of it, I either will discontinue. So if they're really early in the course, meaning they're at the lowest doses and they're having severe reactions to that, I usually discontinue because there's no way for me to be able to build you up to the high dose that I need you to be at safely. If you're kind of farther along and you're having, you know, bad reactions, but they're not, they don't seem to be life-threatening, what we'll usually do is lower your dose and then slowly build you back up. So rather than going through the normal, each time you come in, you increase your dose, we would probably give you the same dose a few times to make sure you're okay before increasing. So for most patients, it takes somewhere between six to nine months to get to the highest dose. 
But in that case, it could take over a year if you're having a little bit of trouble to get you to the higher dose. So usually if I can push on, I try to push on. But it also, it's a conversation that, you know, we have with the patient too. Some patients are just like, no, I can't. You know, it's it's too scary. It's too much. It's too risky. And that's understandable. And they just want to stop. They don't want to have any complications. But then there are also a lot of patients who feel so bad from their allergies that they're really willing to keep pushing through, even when I'm kind of like, eh, I don't know if it's a good idea. You know, they really want to try to do it. And so we try to find a balance between what professionally and ethically we're doing and what sure. the patients really need and want for their lifestyle. Right. They gave her everything that you said, basically. I mean, she got the epinephrine. They gave her, I think, a steroid. They gave her ranitidine and uh, like mm-hmm. a few other things. Pretty much they just like inject her with everything. Yeah. And, yeah. She wound up just being observed in the emergency room for a little bit. And then that's essentially what you said is what her doctor said as well, that at this point, not a good idea to, to continue with, mm-hmm. with the shots after the reaction that she had. And yeah, it's, it's unfortunate because I think just like you were saying, a lot of the patients that had severe allergies for so long, they wound up getting these shots and wound up having this like quality of life changing experience is what she was looking forward to because, you know, she takes everything under the sun as far as medications. And I guess to that end, what are the different medication options for allergies? And, you know, how do you go about explaining to your patients about how these different medications work? Yeah, so I usually say is with allergies, there are three treatment options, which are not necessarily all medications. But the first is if we can identify whatever you're allergic to, decreasing your exposure or completely eradicating exposure to that allergen is number one, if you can. You know, clearly there are some patients who are allergic to dogs, for instance, like myself, allergic to my dog, and I live with her and I'm not going to get rid of her. So I just try to do what I can to, you know, keep things clean and decrease her dander and all that kind of stuff at home. The second thing are the daily medications. So antihistamines are number one, Zyrtec, Claritin, Allegra, Benadryl, things like that. Plus intranasal steroids. So that would be Flonase, Nasonex, Rhinocort, medicines like that. Those are really the kind of first line treatment, which usually work better if they're taken on a daily basis rather than as needed during whatever seasons may be bothering you. Or if you have kind of perennial allergens, then you need to take it all year to feel better. The next step from there would be other types of medications that are more prescription-based. So there's one called Montelukast or Singulaire, which is something we use for nasal allergies and allergic asthma, but it's a prescription only and has a little bit more side effects than, uh, or can have potential side effects more so than Zyrtec and Claritin and things like that. So that's another option. Then there are other medicated nasal sprays that are prescription strength. So one is Azelastine, which I describe as like a Benadryl for your nose. So um, intranasal steroids are meant to decrease inflammation and decrease mucus production Lot, but they don't really work well for sneezing, uh, itchy nose, runny nose, things like that. So azelastine is a really good one because it's going to dry you up and really in the same way that a antihistamine will work, it works that way, but directly in your nose. Then we rely a lot on intranasal saline, saline rinses like neti pots and mm-hmm. um, navage and all those other kind of irrigation systems work really, really well to decrease inflammation and to rinse out all the junk that you've breathed into your nose during the day. And then of course, eye drops if you have eye allergy symptoms, over the counter or prescription. And if you have allergic asthma, which we, you know, we treat allergic asthma and general asthma anyway, different inhaled corticosteroids or albuterol and things like that. Those are sort of the kind of general medications you'll see in the allergy clinic. 
Then, you know, we talked about shots, which is subcutaneous immunotherapy, but then there's also something called sublingual immunotherapy, which can either be a drop form or a pill form. So for allergic rhinitis, which is nasal allergies, there are four different oral immunotherapy tablets that are FDA approved. One is for ragweed, it's called Ragweedtech. There's one for dust mite called Odactra, one for five grasses called Orlair, and one for Timothy grass called Grastech. So those four are basically, if you think about it, like shots, but in a pill form. Oh, okay. They're meant to do the same thing. Shots are good because you can cover lots of different allergens at one time versus pills are you know, monotherapy only. So you can treat patients who are sensitized to many things. You know, you just would choose the primary one. So if dust mite is their biggest problem, then you just treat them for dust mite. And actually in Europe, what they usually do is only treat the top two allergens. They don't treat all of them like we do in the US. So there's some utility to doing that. So that could be an option for Rama. You know, those are kind of the big ones. And then there are also allergy drops, which is similar to the pill, except allergy drops are not FDA approved. We usually use the extract that's used in your shot, dilute it down a little bit, and then put it in a drop form that you put under your tongue. So all practices don't do that, but a few do. And it's proven to be very effective. Usually we consider all the oral medications, either the pills or the drops, to be a little bit more safe than allergy shots because it's not so much of a systemic absorption so quickly. But the unfortunate part is they're not usually as effective as the shots are. Gotcha. You sort of gotcha. have the plus minus there a bit. Yeah. And with some of the medications that you mentioned, you know, like some of the over-the-counters and also like the singular, is there any recommendation as to what part of the day is better to take some mm -hmm. of these medications or does it not matter really? So I usually say take it whenever you'll remember to take it. So some mm -hmm. patients just their morning is too crazy with, you know, work and kids and other things that they just won't remember to take their medication. So I say take that at night then, you know, where you have time to really just have a little note or a cell phone reminder right. to let you know what to do. So Zyrtec and all the over-the-counters, really any time of day is fine. Usually, most patients tend to take it once a day, but for most of those medications, you can take them twice a day if you needed to. Then for Singular, we prescribe it as a nighttime medication, and that's because in studies, it showed that patients with asthma specifically tend to have more trouble at night. So we always say take it at nighttime to help you kind of get over that little hump till the morning. But I have a lot of patients who just will not remember to do that and, you know, or can't do it. And so they take it during the day and they still get the same relief from it. So either way, it should be fine. Gotcha. And, you know, one of the questions that we got to the podcast from a listener, I know you mentioned some of the things like nasal saline flushes and the neti pots and things like that. Are there any other like natural slash, you know, non-medication based strategies to deal with the uh, like common seasonal allergies or is there really nothing proven otherwise? There are not any great proven kind of natural supplements. There's one that I've had a lot of patients talk to me about recently and I, I looked into it a bit where they're using silver nitrate nasal flushes. So instead of just saline, silver nitrate, and there is a little bit of data out there about it. It seems to be anti-inflammatory and a little antibacterial also. So especially patients who get chronic sinusitis, secondary to nasal allergies, seem to do kind of a little bit better with it. I've had just a handful of patients who, who've used it and I've not prescribed it myself, but they do seem to do better and there does seem to be a little bit of data behind them. Other than that, they're not really great options for kind of general 
anti-inflammatory things or antihistamine medications that are not really pharmacotherapy. There's a little bit of data that in patients with vitamin D deficiency or insufficiency, that if you kind of get their vitamin D to good normal levels, that they tend to do better if they have asthma and allergies. And there is a little bit of data that using probiotics and especially patients with food allergies, that they tend to do a little bit better. I like this right here. But again, the jury is out. And there's not enough data for it to be, you know, kind of used broadly with patients or enough data to really show that in a really big patient population, it does what we think it may do. So we just need more research into that. But those would be the two for now. That's some really good uh, information there. I think that would definitely satisfy this listener to hear some of that stuff. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm just reminded of when you asked if I had any allergies. I had a really good run up until my first year of medical school of not having allergies. And I, I think I'm only sharing this story because if only one person can take this story and not do something this stupid. And you think at that point in my life, I would have known better than to not do this. But here it goes. And, you know, give me your feedback as both a person and an allergy expert. But my first year of medical school was essentially the first time in my life where I actually moved into a non-dormitory setting. And like, I actually had to like buy furniture and stuff like a bed and you know craigslist was popping at that time and i bought not even a bed it wasn't even a bed i bought a futon i was like i can do this like they're basically giving it away right and you know the pictures like look great and you see where this story is headed yeah i got this mattress off craigslist for like nothing and pretty much immediately i just started you know violent sneezes and like you know like my eyes were just like watering i couldn't even like get my contacts in i don't know if i was like in denial that it was this mattress it's like what i thought was just like a steal and it was it stole my immunity <laughs> and from that point on and after like a week of pretty much being like no it's not the mattress and then literally just slapping this mattress with like clouds of like dust uh. like, coming out of it and i was just like okay i think i see what's going on here i'm gonna have to get my life together right. and so from that point on, I'm very sensitive to dust. Gada, gada. So I guess where I'm going with this is is A, just like a public service announcement to <laughs> anybody capable of that type of stupidity. This is a public service announcement. To not buy things like that on- Don't do it. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, but then also, I guess, uh, to just ask in a, in a general sense, like how do people generally develop allergies? Like what are, you know, without getting, I guess, like too technical, like into the mm -hmm. immunity of it, like the mechanisms by which some people develop severe seasonal allergies or allergies to dust while others don't. Yeah, so sort of the, the biggest thing with allergies is you have to have an exposure to develop allergies. So if you've never been around dust, let's say ever in your life, you should not be allergic to dust. But if you have a big exposure to something and your body does not like it, Ugh. then you develop an allergy to it. So for you, you know, you were probably around dust mites, which are the biggest allergen in dust particles. You know, most of your life, but not at super high levels on the food <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> so, you know, in your body, just your immune reaction to it is like, no, 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 get this away from me. And now you're, you know, still sensitive to it. So that's sort of the, the basic mechanism usually. If you think 
think about it, you know, kids, for instance, little babies, you hardly ever see that an infant has nasal allergies because they're too new to the world to really have that big of an exposure to develop it. So for most kids, it takes them a few years to really start developing allergies to things in the environment. Because again, that exposure, you just need to have constant exposure, either at low levels or a big exposure all at once. That's kind of the, I guess, the most common mechanism. Other than that, we're really not 100% sure because there are lots of people who have big exposures to allergens all the time and they just don't develop allergies. You know, they're the lucky ones, right? But, you know, we don't exactly know why that happens. So just a kind of personal anecdote, my and my family, I have horrible allergies and I always have since I was a child, usually during spring time and I grew up in you know in New Orleans where everything grows all the time mm -hmm. um but my sisters I have four sisters they don't have allergies what none of them so it's kind of bizarre we grew up in the same environment the same house went to the same schools ate the same food you know we're born of the same mom <laughs> mm -hmm. and it's really kind of strange so you know we we still have limited information about why this happens to some people versus others you know we know that there's some imbalances in certain types of t-cells in the body it's still a very evolving kind of field but generally speaking you have to have an exposure usually the bigger the exposure is the worse and then there are also other you know environmental genetic hormonal factors at play that makes some people a little bit worse off than others gotcha and just as far as environment that seems to be like a big thing you know even just like geographically are there certain places that are better to live i imagine if you have like severe allergies like alaska or right know, places like that i'm guessing like the, the warmer climates are probably worse for people with severe seasonal allergies yeah so warmer climates where things grow is usually worse so if you're in a desert, unless you're allergic to dust or mold, you're probably fine. So mm. most patients, you know, it's just dry there. There are no trees, you know, there's no grass or weeds, they're okay. But it really does all depend on what you're allergic to. Because there are plenty of people who don't have tree, grass, or weed allergies. Mm -hmm. They're only allergic to things like dust mites, mold, dogs, and cats. Um, so those people are a little bit different, but generally speaking, if it's kind of cool, dry, and there's not a lot of vegetation, you tend to do better. Gotcha. How is California, by the way, for you and the allergies, being an allergy sufferer yourself? Yeah. So, so I've only been there for a year, so my allergies are awesome in California. Oh, okay. I feel great, but... I know that, you know, two or three years into it, it can change, right? Because uh. I mentioned, you have to have exposure to develop allergies to a place. So right now I'm around all the trees and grasses and things that I've never really lived around and, you know, for a long term. But I expect just as my system has done in other places I've lived in, that I'll develop allergies there. And so if we check back in in like two or three years, I'll probably have a different story. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yes. yeah. Are there any particular resources you yourself use or recommend for things like, you know, pollen counts and other allergens, just as far as like an app or something like that that, that you look at like every day or kind of? Uh... Yeah, I actually look at the Weather Channel okay. every day. So on their app, they have a pollen count. If you sort of, you know, download the app and scroll down to the bottom of the page, there's a, I think it's called like an allergy outlook or something like that. But they have pollen counts there and they say if it's trees that are high, grasses, weeds, humidity even, things like that. That can sort of help you gauge what the environment is like that day in your, your particular zip code. So I like using that and I tell my patients to use that a lot. Kind of more generally there, I mentioned before there are those pollen counters in almost every state. And their website, I want to say it's 
like nab.org or something like that. But they basically, if you're really interested in kind of the nitty gritty, they have a lot of more detailed information. It's not really for everyday use, but really detailed information for different zip codes on what the pollen counts are and things like that. So I find those to be particularly helpful for me and for patients. Gotcha. Uh, that's great advice. Are there any other kind of like bread and butter conditions that you see on a day-to-day basis that we didn't talk about? Yeah. So, you know, as an allergist, immunologist, we see allergic conditions and immunodeficiency conditions. So, you know, I see lots of the kind of nasal allergies, food allergies, venom allergies. So bees, wasps, hornets, things like that. Eczema, asthma is another big one. And then on the immunodeficiency side, so most people are familiar with secondary immune deficiency, which is something like HIV, for instance, where you're not born with it but you acquire it at some point in your life. We deal with people who have primary immune deficiency, meaning they're born with some genetic problem that predisposes them to cancers, to infections, to autoimmune disease in some. And it's kind of their, their immune system just at the very basic level, something is wrong with it. And so that's another thing that we treat a whole lot. And we're usually the primary providers for those patients. So they'll see an immunologist, which we are, and then they may see also a rheumatologist if they have autoimmune issues, or an oncologist if they have cancer issues, or an infectious disease doctor if they also have lots of infections where we need a little bit of help. But usually it's a more pediatric-based population Mm. because it's kids, you know, right when they're born who have something funny going on and people start to think, hmm, there's something wrong with their immune system, and so we get involved there. Gotcha. And for somebody kind of not familiar with the process, how do you get into your field as far as what mm-hmm. type of residency training or fields do you need to be in to be able to get into uh, your your specialty after medical school? Yeah, so allergy immunology is an awesome one because you can come from several different directions and get into this kind of fellowship and field. So I did internal medicine training um, after medical school, and then I did allergy immunology training at um, the National Institutes of Health in, in Maryland. In my class, so I was internal medicine, so adult medicine trained. In my class, we had uh, one fellow who was a pediatrician, mm-hmm. one fellow who was a family medicine okay. doctor. And we all ended up in the same place. So with allergy and immunology, all training programs per ACGME have to train in adult medicine and pediatric medicine. So even though I did my kind of background with just adults, I now see kids and adults pretty much equally. And every program has to do that. And, you know, it's really because all of the things that we see cover that whole spectrum, right? So we see little kids with food allergies or adults with food allergies, you know, adults with asthma, kids with asthma, everything like that and everything in between. So it's really good because you don't have to make that decision early on like you do with, you know, cardiology or neurology or all those things, if whether you want to focus on kids only or adults only. Um, You can really choose to do both or one or the other, depending on, you know, whatever. Right now, you know, I'm an adult medicine trained person. But I work for a children's right. hospital. So it really gave me a lot of flexibility. Right. Which I like. And that, was that uh, two or three years after your, your residency? So most uh, training programs are two years. But mine was three years. There are a handful that 
require research, mm -hmm. which I'm also really interested in. And so I did a three-year program so that I could do research as well. Got it. Well, I truly, truly appreciate your time. And I think you know, people listening, especially the ones that uh, either have allergies themselves or, or know somebody that do, will definitely have uh, a lot of valuable information here. This has been tremendous. And I think we found our go-to allergy expert. <laughs> We're going to keep getting uh, questions over time. So as long as uh, you're willing to do it, I think that would be of tremendous value to people. Thanks again for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. This is fun. Thanks for having absolutely. me. Absolutely. And I guess the last thing that I forgot to mention, your sister is a filmmaker. And I've seen both of her films, Vanishing Pearls and Clackamines, mm -hmm. correct? Correct. Is there any like collaboration in the works between uh, you and your sister to do any kind of um, film or documentary? Or We talk about things all the time we don't have anything set in stone at all but i think it's a good idea because we both have lots of stories we want to tell and lots of stories we think are important and interesting and she's gotten a little bit more interested in kind of healthcare and policy types of issues which is really a lot of where my my heart lies so i think we need to come up with a good project now keep you guys awesome posted. not awesome. yet though <laughs> please do and uh thanks again for this and i think it's going to turn out great I'll have this chopped up and edited and we'll get it out uh, hopefully like in the next few weeks. Awesome. Thank you. Thank Sarish. you. Bye. The documentary. Documentary. Who's the doc that he told you to go see? This is probably one of the hardest things to do and that's ask for help. We need your help. On any front. Asking for help medically. I don't need therapy. Asking for help. Life-wise. Need help. Need help now. Asking for help. Supporting Medicine Remix. I guess it's all uncomfortable. Uh. No easy way to do it. Until now. The folks over at Anchor have decided to unveil something that we think is pretty dope. Ladies and gentlemen. It's called listener support. And the way it works is you go to anchor.fm slash medicine remixed. And it'll take you to our page. There's a support button. Click on it. Follow what it says. And bam, you have now donated the vital blood to this organism that it needs to keep on pumping. Thanks for listening. Medicine Remix.